Hello, I'm Eddie Temple-Morris. And I'm Nick Hawkes. You're about to hear episode seven of Trailblazers with a real legend in the game, Mr. Daniel Miller, the boss of Mute Records. Not only the boss, but the, the guy who started the whole thing, the whole Mute uh, journey, Depeche Mode and Erasure, and all sorts of stories that come out. Absolutely fascinating stuff, I Hope that, that you enjoy it. We certainly enjoyed chatting to Daniel, didn't we? It was, it was, yeah, it was a great yeah. one. And, uh, and what you get here is you get a taster of the music that was significant uh, for Daniel on his journey. If you want to listen to the tracks in full, Deezer.com is where you go to. And there you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists from uh, Eddie and myself and our guests. Yeah, talk about someone who was ahead of the curve. You know, a lot of the mm-hmm. things that we really love about dance music uh, were pretty much started by this man. So this is a real interesting one. Let's begin. Deezer Originals Trailblazers Daniel Miller Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers. My name's Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL and Positiva Records founder Nick Hawks. Together, each time we light a warm and friendly fire and invite another dance music legend like Nick to chat to us by the fireside, to talk about the cultural fires they started, and to play some of the tunes that soundtrack their fascinating lives. This week's fire starter is a sonic test pilot, avant-garde electronic musician, analogue synth guru, mute records and publishing company boss extraordinaire, new music champion, and to millions of people, the man that gave the world Depeche Mode. Daniel Miller, welcome to Trailblazers. What a, well, it's great to see, to have your name on this, uh, on this list. So um, as, I, as I put a log on the fire, I'm going to hand you over to Nick, as I always do. So, so where, let's scroll back now. Mm-hmm. Tell, where did the, the interest start in, in music for you? What, what was the... Yeah. Well, according to, I mean, it, it goes beyond before my memory, actually. Ah. According to my parents at the time, who um, right. I was obsessed with Three Blind Mice, the, the nursery rhyme. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, yeah. <laughs> I, I just stood over the record player, or radiogram, or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And I just, well, I must have been two or something, I don't okay. know. Just, I was just obsessed, just wanted to hear that track all the time. Non-stop. Non-stop. More mice. Apparently constant saying, rewinds. More, yeah, constant rewinds. Just more mice, apparently, I used to say. More mice, more so, mice. So, that obsession... Yeah, happens before I can. I don't. I don't remember it, but right. I was so that. Oh, that's fun. Wow. Yeah, well, that, that is quite <laughs> because that is an obsession. If you look at it with simplicity, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's with innocence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but that, that's almost like a, it, it almost provides a model for the for yeah. the electronic music that, that you got into <laughs> later. Yeah. And I didn't uh, put that on the list, unfortunately. No, no. Okay, well, we'll uh, <laughs> we, we can, can visualise. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you had, and then what, what was the first music that you became aware of? You know, when you were like, right, mm. I know there's something going on here. It excites. Me. I think it was. I think it was skiffle. Right. Early. I mean, I was probably about. I don't know when. I was probably about six, seven, or seven or eight, or okay. something like that, when skiffle started. Is this sort of? Mid sixties? Oh no, way, no, way before. Oh, this is fifties. We're in the fifties. Yeah, right we're in we? the fifties. Okay. Uh, uh, sort of late-ish fifties, I guess. Okay, right. Okay. And somehow I became aware of skiffle. I don't really know how. Okay. Because I mean, there wasn't, you know, radio like no, there is there's now. There's no radio one in the fifties. No, it was like there was a light program. Okay. And um, <laughs> but there was a show on. I think it was on at eight o'clock in the evening, which was a skiffle show. Right. Which is <laughs> kind of a fake. Kind of American gig, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I can't remember. But I used. To, but I was so obsessed. My, I was allowed to stay up to listen to that. Right. And um, 
and uh, then I went from that to then of course I became a bit more aware of rock and roll mm, mm. and then you know I Chuck Berry, people like that, I really love. Yeah. Bo Diddley, yeah, 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 and then the whole, you know, you know, the English, you know, Beatles, Stones. Yes. When I got into my sort of, when I was about eleven or something like that, okay, and I was, you know, gone. You were it was into it. it. That was it. I, it was over. My life was over at that point. Is is there a bit of music that that you'd like to like well, us to play from from that era? That well, I think I think well, I think there was a, uh, yeah, there was a Johnny Duncan and the Bluegrass Boys, which is a skiffle, which was a kind of a. He's actually American, but lived. He was, I think, he was in the forces and ended up living in Hartlepool or something like that. Um, <laughs> oh and, wow! <laughs> and he was he was great, and he's got some great, great, really kind of energetic, exciting sounding, great sounding stuff. That great. I when I was about five or seven or eight. Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. Last train to San Fernando. That's a cool slowdown at the end. Yeah, very good. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm knowing Forgot nothing about knowing nothing at all about skiffle music. Are they yeah. are they the skiffle mainstream, or were you because ever since the late seventies, your life is a, is about as far away from the mainstream as anyone can or get. Is, is that more underground when, skiffle? Yeah, when did that's a really good question. I, it felt pretty <laughs> underground to me. I have no idea. But skiffle, well, you know, skiffle was like actually a precursor to punk rock in a way because it was lots of kids who weren't musicians mm. using making music i mean he was more experienced but the, but you know it was the, it was the washboard and the yeah. t chest bass and Basic. all that yeah so it was so it was like kids making this kind of sort of you know weirdly distorted version of american music yeah. skiffle was british it wasn't it was a very very much a british phenomenon not yes. us you know people like, i mean lonnie donegan was a big yes. skiffle star yeah right, right right but you know i remember there was a program on tv called thank your lucky stars mm. And they used to have all these kids doing their skiffle things. I mean, you know, and it was, yeah, it was kind of like punk. Lots of... Excitement, begin- energy. Yeah, youth, yeah exactly. No, no no need for technical expertise, just having fun and right. making a noise, you it's know. It's DIY. The DIY it thing was, is the key It was to very that, it? DIY, yes. It was very DIY, yeah. And that was nice. And then, you know, then, of course, around 61, 62, then the whole British beat pop thing got mm. exploded with the Beatles and the Stones and all those great bands, Kinks. Oh, I guess I could go on. And, 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 were, were you a Beatles man or a Stones man? Well, that's really that's. I was a bit. Uh, the very initially, I was a Beatles man. Well, the, the Stones started. The Beatles started just before the Stones. Yeah. Or, and I remember going to around to a friend of mine's uh, house, and his mum. You know, she, I had sort of long hair. You know, like so. You know, and um, yeah. she was very anti-long hair and all that kind of. And I remember when "She Loves You" came out by the Beatles. She said, um, oh, I quite like that. And at that moment, I immediately went on to the Stones. A <laughs> <laughs> kiss of yeah. death. Um, but I went, came back to the Beatles, the Stones. But it was, there was so much, I mean, you know, it's incredible energy at that time for somebody, you know, I was 11 or 12 or something, and it was just mm. like all this stuff that was sounding unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and it still was no Radio 1. It was, no. it was still the light programme. It was Saturday Club, mm. Brian Matthew on Saturday Club. Were was, you buying seven-inch singles? I started. I started point? to buy seven-inch singles. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah where, where were you growing up? Northwest London, Golders Green, that okay. sort of area. Okay. Okay. Um, 
There's loads of record shops around there. Yeah. But, you know, you'd hang around and just listen, you know, because you could listen to records in those days, you know. Mm. And, mm. Uh, but I started to buy, yeah, I started to buy records, yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. And uh, so then, so you, you, yeah, you were more of a Stones person, did you say? Well, it moved on, and then, of yeah. course, and then when the pretty things started, the Stones seemed very, you know, it, you, know mm. you know, you move on really quickly at that age. But, I know, but also, obviously, I mean, I think the Stones... For era, you know, the Brian Jones era basically was my is my favourite Stones era. Right, and they went a bit rock and ro- rock after that. I never thought of them as a rock band; they were kind of an R and B band. So, so around this point where mm. you're you're distilling your taste, uh, do, mm. do you? I mean, what, there, there isn't a music industry though at, at at this point though anything like what it's been over the last sort of twenty thirty years, is there? It was a uh, like if you'd said presumably mm. to your parents, "I yeah. want to be." I want to run a record. Who would say anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I, had no, I didn't have... Didn't have, I wanted to be in a band. You wanted to be in a band? Yeah, and I was in a band. Right. I mean, I started... Well, everybody was in a band. Right. <laughs> you know, Tell and, us about your band. Well, there's a school based, based at school. Yeah. And, like, most... You know, all the really great musicians gravitated together. Yep. Gravitated mm. together, is that right? And all the worst musicians gravitated together. And I was in that lowest, that was in that very bottom, really? bottom rung. Okay. And uh, you describe yourself as a terrible guitar player. Oh, I mean, awful. But really had a lot of fun. And there's some, actually, a couple of really great musicians came, were in my class at school. Ah, tell us. Paul Kossoff from Free. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was in my class at school. He tried to teach me to play guitar. We were quite good friends. And he tried to teach me, but he failed. Even he failed to teach me, so I knew that that wasn't... Okay. And Nick Potter, who was in uh, Van de Graaff Generator and various other... Right. Yeah. They were both in my class, and they were great. At the age of 12, they were clearly super talented. Mm. I mean, Paul was a great classical guitarist. Yes. He did kind of do recitals at school and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. Nick was really, you know, a great bass player. So... Mm. And you know, but I, I had no real pretensions to being. I just wanted to play. I was going to say it's, it's interesting that you there's there's almost self A and R and going on back there. You know, yeah. there's, there's no delusion. I mean, with oh, a lot yeah. of people, no, they just very... think that they're great, but they're shit. And yeah. um, you you knew you were rubbish. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a, there's great self awareness there, which is something to yeah. which is very laudable. Yeah, and we, you know, I practiced like hell and it never got any better. You know, so I, I, I've reached a very low ceiling and I enjoy, but I enjoyed it you know when I, we, we used to play we even did a few gigs yeah. kind of at school and stuff like that and were, you, were, you cu- were you covering Rolling Stones songs and stuff like that or, or some of yeah, the songs uh, that the Rolling yeah. Stones were covering <laughs> yeah definitely actually yeah we were covering the sto- songs the Rolling Stones were covering I mean, we did Chuck Berry songs yeah, and yeah. some blues you know the, 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 as it went on more bluesy stuff um, you know but mm. well let's let's hear a bit of music from that era now where mm. you you're, you're you're playing in a band and you're starting to think i'd like to be a musician yeah what, what, what would you like to give us a, a blast of from, uh, from well, that it, zone it could have been a number of things but yeah. i thought I, I i've been listening to early stones a lot recently just because getting back into it and I, I thought i'd play i want to be your man which was their second single but I remember when it came out, it was scandalised. Like so much, everything about the Rolling Stones was scandalised in those days. They couldn't move without causing a scandal. But the scandal about this song, which I really liked, which was actually written by Lennon and McCartney, mm. was there are only seventeen words in the different words in the song, and that was a scandal because it was so um, illiterate. You know, <laughs> <laughs> seventeen words and, and and one minute forty four seconds long. <laughs> yeah, there you okay. go. Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. Tell me that you love me, baby 
great bit of history from 1964. That's the Rolling Stones doing a Beatles song, um, soundtrack in the life of Daniel Miller. Um, so, Daniel, at, at this point, you, you had the self-awareness to know that you were a terrible guitar player and you weren't going to get anywhere, and it was other people that were going to have success in that. Right. Um, at what point did you um, then kind of get involved? Because it, I guess the key for you would be discovering the, the first synthesizer one of the first synthesizers when when did that moment happen when because it must have been an epiphany for you yeah it, well it, yeah for sure it was i mean i think if you look back through that period 1962 to 1966 1967 how music progressed through that period how it you know it grew and expanded through that period is unbelievable if you think of just four years four or five years if you think of any other four or five year period in the history of pop music it doesn't come close to that and I was on that wave, you know, I was following it, I was on that wave. But then all of a sudden, I got bored around 67, 68, when it got, I don't know, it seemed to get very in, more inward looking, more self indulgent, a bit more. Everybody started taking loads of drugs at that time. Well, yeah, I mean, the drugs were there all the time, but they were, I think that people had, of course, drugs had a very positive, well, I wouldn't say they had a positive, but drugs had an effect on music, as always, going hand in hand with music. And I think at a certain point, I think that was going kind of getting dark, not darker, it, it dark. I don't, I've always liked dark, but inward looking and kind of self-indulgent and all that kind of energy like we just heard on the Rolling Stones, which was unbelievable energy, seemed to be dissipated into more muso-y kind of music kind of shit, you know, yeah. which, which <laughs> I, it didn't appeal to me. It never has really. And so I was looking for other stuff, you know, and I'd be listening to radio, trying to try and tune into sort of weird foreign stations playing avant-garde music and I, you know, I could kind of got you know started to hear things that i liked i had no idea what they were uh, and then i'm uh, guessing it was germany that something maybe well, coming out of germany that turned germany, you on? france there was french like you know but then you couldn't really tell if it was the interference on the radio that was it or that was in the record it didn't matter it didn't matter because it sounded great did you, did you find yourself going into record stores and going oh, I want this record and it sort of like fades in it goes really quiet and then it comes back up to, and then it fades out yeah, and it crackles yeah. but I suppose um, I, I some, by, almost by accident I sort of discovered what was going on in Germany in the sort of late 60s musically um I remember going. I was at. Uh, I was just started at college in Guildford, and there was a Woolworths there that had the most incredible bargain bin. Somebody made some huge mistakes. A buyer had made some huge mistakes, or taken too many drugs, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and I found this record by a group called Armand Duel, mm. and I thought, and it was German, and I, I didn't know who it was or what it was, but the cover was amazing. It's called, the album's called Phallus Day. Mm. Armand Duel Two, to be clear. Mm. 50p or whatever yeah. at the time yeah it had lots of umlauts on it mm. and uh, great look sounding so I bought it and I, and I took it home and, I th and it, it was incredible I found it really amazing mm. partly because the, it was just completely unstructured right it was it felt like it was played by people who didn't really know how to play yeah. which is actually wrong that, that's incorrect but it's kind of sounded like that yeah kind of and it had lots of weird noises on it mm. And very quickly, and John Peel, of course, was you know a huge influence, and he yes. he started playing similar stuff. Yeah, he played know. Can. Yeah, and I heard my first Can record, mm -hmm. and that, that again, that was you know, 
if you think of it's you know you listen to so many people love can and say cite it as an influence but at that moment in time to hear can in the context of everything else was going on mm. there was so much space it was kind of repetitive but not re- you know repetitive and all that kind of stuff and it was just like exactly what i wanted to hear you know it got rid of all the clutter had other kind of the sort of simplicity but you know it's it's quite actually complicated but felt quite sim- simplicity of something like the Rolling Stones, but sounding pretty different. And you were at college at this point, were you? I just started at college, doing yeah. Doing art stuff? Film, I was doing film, film, film and TV, yeah. And, and were your contemporaries into some of the same music as you, or were you just a little bit out on a limb discovering Can and your... Well, I was a little bit of an evangelist for it all, so I right. got some people into it, you Good. know. all right, OK. <laughs> so you've got to listen to this, got to listen, put the headphones on, turn it up, you know. Excellent, excellent. Um, but the first synthesizer that I actually got my hands on was at college. Um, there was a guy called Ron Geeson, who was a sound artist and poet who'd worked with people like Pink Floyd. And we had sort of, um, we had, you know, visiting lecturers who came in to give a one-off, one-off yeah, lectures. Talk, yeah. yeah, one-off talks. And he came in to give a talk and he brought his, a synthesizer with him. He brought a VCS3, or actually, no, an AKS uh, synthy uh, for, uh, made by um, EMS, the one in the suitcase, with mm. the, which is a bit like the one that Brian Eno used, but it's in a suitcase. Right, and he'd only just got it, so he didn't really know how to use it. So he said, "We just so he just plugged it in and said, have a, have a go,' you know." This everybody. is one with the giant patch bay on it, and it's got it? the pin pin matrix. Yeah, on it. Oh, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you know, made famous by people like Eno and uh, mm-hmm. Hawkwind, especially. Yeah, um, we'll get on to Hawkwind. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, let's. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and yeah, so we, that was my first, and I and it was and I was yeah that combined with hearing some of the electronic music or music that used electronics at the time, kind of had me hooked really. Right. And did you start making some of your own music at that point then? Well, college and well, we used. I did a lot of stuff with tape manipulation. Oh. There were no synth- the synthesizer wasn't at, at college. No, he just brought it with. Yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. So that was yeah, just your yeah, first yeah. taste, and he didn't really know how to use it. And he and didn't I know how to use it. You probably made better sounds out of it than I he did. I don't know. <laughs> we not really. We you know we had five minutes each on it or something yeah. like that. But yeah, but there, there was a small sound studio there which had three stereo tape recorders, quarter inch tape recorders. So we did a lot of stuff with tape loops and you know cutting up tapes and using using them as delays and playing melodicas and stuff like that into it and distorting and those kind of things for more for the kind of soundtracks for the films that we were working on but mm. um i just got into it very very much film was always my second cho- music was always my first passion but mm-hmm. i didn't couldn't work out how i was going to engage with it on a you know professional level in a, right. or or anything other than just being in a in a in an enjoyable but not very good band you know right and uh, so this was a new way of engaging with it. Synthesizers were incredibly expensive at that time for somebody like me. Sure, so, sure. For everyone, yeah, they were so, every, yeah. so prohibitively expensive when they came out. It yeah, was, uh, yeah, they were so exclusive. That yeah, whole they were very, world. yeah, very kind of you could say elitist in a way. Yeah, but, absolutely. So, so how yeah. did you? I guess you had to save up. <laughs> well, I didn't get. I mean, that was nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. I didn't get a synthesizer till seventy seven. Yeah. So there was, you know, there was quite a long gap between that. But I was. You know, I worked in film for a while, a little bit as an editor. I started my first DJ kind of career, not mm. career, sorry, for DJing in in Switzerland. And in, uh, in a 
What was the, yeah, what was the context of that? The context was it's a ski. It was a the context was I'd been working after I left college. I worked for a couple of years in a cutting room in a you know doing. And I just had enough of being in London and being cooped right. up. Yeah, and I just wanted to get to. I wanted to go to the mountains. I love the mountains. I want to go to the mountains and uh, get some air. And you mm. know, and I thought, well, if I'm, I knew a place I wanted to go where, where I'd been to before on holiday. And I thought, if I want to, if I go, I'd like to go to that village, right? And I'd like to DJ at that club because it's a great, well, it's, it's a good place to meet people. And um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and it meant that I could ski during the day and work at night. So I just went there. I, I basically I went on the, on the road. I went on the road. I left. I left work and decided to go on the road. And on, while I was on the road, I went there and um, applied for a job. I never DJed before in my life. So did you have to t- uh, temper your very avant-garde taste to sort oh, of yeah. fit in with the Après Ski Brigade in in Gestard <laughs> or you were? It was, it was actually it's called Zermatt. It's a place called Zermatt, Zermatt which yeah. is by the by the Matterhorn. And so I did a test in the summer, and they and. And there's nobody there because there's nobody there in the summer. But I just played for an hour or something. I said, "Well, we're not sure if the other DJ's coming back or not. So um, you can get. You'll have, we'll give you a job either as the coat check or the DJ. So the other DJ didn't come back, so I got the job as a DJ. So Excellent. that was my first professional musical engagement. So I did that for two seasons, six months at a time. Great, yeah. And it was really playing the hits of the day, right? Yeah, you know, it was a pop. Yeah, it was like so human jukebox. It, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it was a mixture of ABBA, Deep Purple, Status Quo. Uh, you know uh, the Commodores. Right. Um, it was pre-disco. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it was all over the place, but it was sure. but it was what they it wanted. Was fun. It, was, it was fun, and it's what people wanted. And it, you know, the second season got a bit more funk orientated. A bit more. disco was just sort of done yeah. the first on a summer. Thing I, I did a couple of uh, summer seasons myself. Actually, oh really? I did. I was in um, Mallorca. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I used to DJ like from ten at night till six in the morning. Didn't get a day off. So mm. just like that, some that one summer, I just you know, and you play the big records three yeah. times in a night. Yeah. You know, oh. I'm guessing that when you you first heard that Donna Summer record and you heard Georgia Moroda's production, I mm. mean, obviously knowing um, TVOD, that's almost yeah. a, it's almost a. Uh, a homage to, to Moroda that, that yeah well by, by that time I was really you know by the time I started DJing I was already really into craft work of course mm, and and, course. Those, and you know Klaus Schulz and Noy and the real really into the German stuff and yeah George yeah when I heard uh, I Feel Love but I heard um, Love to Love You Baby was came out before that was yep. the big one when actually when I was de- that when I was DJing, that that was the big, the big tune, the big tune. Yeah, um, and then yeah, the, the uh, I feel love came out later. Yeah, of course I loved it, and I really related it to craft work, and you know I could hear the all the influences, but I thought it was fantastic, you know. And yeah, of course it was an influence. Yeah, and um, yeah, and uh, yeah. So I guess then the the, the next um, pin in the map really of your life would be. Where, where you actually made your first... You, you took all of these influences yeah. and you took the money that you've got from editing and from DJing and whatever yeah. else that you were doing mm. and you invested that in what probably was a, well, a major investment for that time um, your, and your first synthesizer and, and, uh, and something to record with, I presume, like a, a four-track recorder or something. Exactly, yeah. I, I mean, it was, that was around 76 when I decided that I wanted to do it. Because the whole the part I was you know really energ- I was kind of got a bit jaded by music, mm. but then punk happened and it, I got really energized by it mm. by, by the by some of the music, but also just the whole energy of the movement and all the uh, all the things that it threw out. And it was actually meant so many different. It, you could 
the thing about punk for me is, of course, you think about punk, you think about the Sex Pistols, Safety Pins, blah, blah, blah. Yep. But I think for a lot of people, it just gave them the the tools or the energy to, to, to explore their own imaginations, you know, mm-hmm. and in a, or to express their imagination they already had. It was like an open book. You could do whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt that... I actually felt that a synthesizer could be a really great punk instrument. And I thought, okay, this, I just felt it was my time. If I was going to try to do anything, it was going to be then. So I bought a Korg 700, second-hand Korg 700S, which is a very, really good but very basic synth. Because by that time, Japanese synths had started to come out, and they were a lot less expensive than the American ones. Mm. And a TAC four-track tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Plugged it in and started messing around at home, you know. And um, I, for, the, for the first time ever, I really actually thought I enjoyed what I was doing. I, I, well, I always enjoyed the music playing, but I actually thought it was quite, it was all right, you know, yes. as opposed to the guitar, which I just enjoyed and didn't knew it wasn't all right. Yeah. yeah. With the synth, I thought, actually, this is actually, this is all right, actually. So yeah. I, I just did tons of stuff at home every night. By that time, I was working again as, in the cut films. I just, every night, I was just up all night, just mucking about and doing stuff, you know. And I thought I got to a point, and then the whole DIY single thing started, and I thought, what the fuck, I'll just do it. I'll put a, I'll put a record it. out. Just put a record out and see what happens. Nobody will like it. I don't care. Um, but I need to do it. I really had the, you know, the passion to do it, mm. and um, I did so it. So you picked your, your the best track that you had well, I, I d- had or what you thought was the most. I'd, yeah, I'd been working on a couple of songs, and um, and so I just picked those two. I developed, you know, but I, I rented a bit of a, equipment mm. which I could only afford for one day. So I knew that I had to do the whole thing in one day, record yep. and mix. Yeah, and I booked mastering yes so i was really i I gave myself a deadline which was really important very important yeah for sure otherwise Um, yeah without any kind of deadline you can still be uh, finishing (laughs) off now yeah exactly (laughs) and i just did those two the two tracks warm leatherette and tvod and which i thought nobody would like because it was there wasn't much electronic uh, that kind of whatever wave of electronic music hadn't started yet really yeah and I think there was lots of other people at exactly the same time doing exactly the same, like people like the Human League and OMD and Cabaret Voltaire. There was suicide in America. There was suicide in America, that's right, um, which, which was definitely an influence. Um, yeah, I always thought you, 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 you were, at that stage, a very English and slightly camp suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was, I think, I mean, suicide, I think what, the thing about suicide that I... I loved, but also kind of I love their American their their Americanness. Yeah, the fact that they were using that they were an American band, very American sounding, but not American sounding at all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly kind what of, you mean. The kind of very rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. Alan Vega, you know, really rock and roll, but the sound was nothing to do with that. Yeah, they're as American as the Ramones, but yeah, with no guitars at all. <laughs> yeah, so, which I really like. But also, I wanted to do something that was not American. And um, so it's all those things kind of fed into it, you know. But but when I, you know, the, the kind of when I'm the post-punk electronic thing hadn't quite started. It was all, everybody was doing. Everybody had the same influences. When you when I met all these people afterwards, everybody had the same influences, had the same trajectory, mm. and a lot of records came out in about four month period in 1978. Mm. 
out of that kind of movement, you know. So yeah, well, Gary Newman is someone that we talked to who was you yeah. know, really getting active in that period yeah. and, and was was so inspired. I, mm. I must mention that it's the, it, as we record this, it's the day after David Bowie, two days after David Bowie died. Yeah. And of course, you know, what a massive influence on, on there would be no Gary Newman without oh, without David Bowie. Yeah. Uh, what 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 um what kind of influence did Bowie have in your life? Well, at that point, at that point, I have to admit, and it sounds horrible in the context of the time of, of today, the last couple of days, but he had no influence whatsoever. I actually, because he'd taken a lot of the influences that I liked. And made them into his own, like a lot of the, especially around the low and heroes time. Mm. Um, and I was kind of, and I was a bit of a, I was a very pure, I was very purist, and I thought oh, he's kind of ripped him off a bit or something like that. Mm. But it wasn't ripped, you know. But the really, you know, but now you, when you get to understand Bowie, he just like took influences from everywhere and, and synthesized them into his own thing. I just thought that he, that he was very successful at that time, and these guys were were not, and he'd kind of taken a lot of their ideas and put them into his music having but you know to be fair credit always credited them mm. and always acknowledged it you know he didn't pretend that he hadn't but bowie somehow i was slightly in the first wave of bowie i mean i liked i remember you know space oddity when i was a yeah. teenager i loved that track by the time the whole ziggy stardust came on i thought it was a bit too commercial yeah i was very into sort of undergrad more the of course the, the german start you know like the you know weird electronic noises and I mean, I like some glam rock. You know, there's some great glam rock things, I think. Mm. It's probably not allowed to say it, but I thought <laughs> Gary Glitter was... And Mike Leander, were, that was absolutely... That was very German, I thought, when I first heard Gary Glitter. Yeah. Very minimal, yep. very kind of... It was. It was At the time, it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're yeah brilliant, yeah. you know. Let's rewind back to, um, to, to Warm Leatherette and, mm. and listen to it before I ask you how on earth um, Grace Jones came to cover that record. <laughs> Trailblazers. Daniel Miller. Warm. Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette Warm Leatherette See the breaking glass In the underpass See the breaking glass in the underpass. Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. So the normal was what you were called then. You, you, um, you made a decision to, yeah. to, to have a sort of... You know, a name, yeah, a, a name, a non divinal, a, a non divinal. <laughs> so, um, I know. So, before I ask you the, the uh, a, a, a bit more about the, um, well, there's an interesting thing about your, your uh, relationship with Rough Trade and that story about you going into to Rough Trade. But, yeah. but what I really want to know is how on earth did Grace Jones come to cover that? Because that is just that's such an obscure track. Was that was it Trevor Horn's influence there? Or? Chris Blackwell. I was Chris Blackwell. Yeah, he was producing the album. That she was working on, uh, which became Warm Leatherette, the album Warm Yeah. And it was a kind of, I mean, what happened with the single was that I thought nobody would like it. I printed 500 copies, or I was going to plan to print 500 copies. I thought nobody would like it. But actually, people did like it. In a, and it, so it became a kind of underground hit, in a way, alternative hit, whatever you want to call it. So it wasn't super obscure. So somebody like Chris Blackwell, who had always had his ear to the ground, or his 
crew around him would have maybe played it to him. And we should probably mention Jeff Travis at this point, because I know that you, yeah, you, absolutely. you brazenly or naively walked into to rough trade going, uh, you know. Well, naively, actually. I, I, I didn't understand how the I didn't know much about how it worked. So I thought I'd press, press a few records, go around to a few of the shops, like Small Wonder was a really, really great shop and rough trade and a few people and see if they'd buy 10. That was my thing. I said, oh, do you want to buy a box? You know, that was my, I didn't really know how it worked, you know. Mm. Mm. And Jeff, uh, Jeff and Richard Scott, who was, they were p- partners in Rough Trade at the time, they, they said, okay, let's have a listen to it. They, they went out, I went to the little back, this is when it was a 202 Kensington Park Road. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a little back office, little back warehouse, and they said, oh, come out, we'll come out to the shop and play it. I said, oh, God, it's little public. Yeah, know, that's a gig. That's a gig, <laughs> you know. And they're always like, and Rough Trade at the time, and still is to a certain extent, it was very much a lot of very cool cool people hanging around mm. being cool mm. friendly but friendly but you know and there's all these people and I remember Jeff putting it on putting the record on in the shop and I, think, oh my, I was like like going must have gone completely red I was totally embarrassed you know and I didn't think they liked it because they were just talking to each other and you know and they said oh we really like that we'd like to distribute it uh, he said how many copies were you thinking of doing and I said 500 so oh, you should do 2000 at least and I said, what, is, what, is, what do you mean distribute it? What does that mean? And he explained it to me in about two minutes. And so I said, okay, why not? So they were the distributor for, the, for it. And uh, people, people liked it. You know, it got really good reviews, which I was shocked at. So it was probably on the radar of somebody like Chris Blackwell or his, his A&R team. Mm. Yeah. And he must have thought, oh, that sounds pretty weird. Let's get, give it to Grace to sing or something. I don't know. I wasn't in part of the conversation at all. Yeah, of course, yeah. I yeah, just yeah. got a phone call from somebody at Island Music, the publishing company, saying, oh, we'd like to publish your song, Warm and Etherette. I said, oh, yeah, why is that? So I can't tell you. I said, come on, well, what, you know, why, you know, I didn't understand what, what it meant. So, well, one of our artists wants, is going to do a cover version of it. So we want to publish it. And I said, okay, who? And they said, we can't tell you. I said, oh, come on, guys, you know, well, I can't, I'm not going to give it to you that. And I was going through my mind, who's on Island? You know, at the time, Bob Marley was still alive. Mm-hmm. And you're thinking, surely not. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Going through the list. Yeah, surely not. Yeah, All those people. <laughs> and then it says, OK, it's Grace Jones. I said, OK. I, I mean, I kind of knew about Grace Jones a bit. I wasn't really... Yeah. I said, fine. You know, if she wants to do a cover version, great. And um, that was it, really. I wasn't involved in it, in, in the process yeah. of it at all. It was just, she just went... And she did some great other cover versions on that. I mean, I, you know, I, I found it quite amusing, her version, but at the time. Mm. But it was great for me, and, uh, you know. So you were, you were up, you were rolling, but had you not... You weren't really a record label at this point, right? You're, no, well, you're, I, you're an artist, putting yeah, out their I, own record. When I put the single out, I had no intention of becoming a record company. I just wanted to put my own single out. I was like a DIY artist putting out their own single. Like, everybody puts out their own music on the internet now. Yeah. I was putting out my own single. So was that Mute 01? Yeah, 001. 001, yeah. <laughs> that was Mute 001, which implies there'll be a 002. So, but of course. I never, but I never thought that at the time. I just thought... Um, and I just... I, and the record was doing quite well, and I was yeah. getting it pressed, and I was doing help, working a little bit at Rough Trade at that point, helping out, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, because I'd kind of left my job as an editor, and I... I was making enough money from the records to, to stay afloat. I, I still didn't really want to make a to, to start a label. I didn't think about it too much. And then somebody introduced me, actually Edwin Pouncey, who was the uh, cartoonist for Sounds, right? Who went under the name of Savage Pencil. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And Edwin still writes for the Wire. Anyway, he introduced me to somebody called Fad Gadget. 
Mm. Oh, Frank Tovey, mm. yeah. Frank Tovey. Mm. And, and I, it was the first... I'd heard people had sent, started to send me demos because I had them in, you know, my address, but there wasn't anything that really excited me. That was the first thing I thought I could really relate to the, the lyrics, mm. the, the sound, the kind of humour and the darkness and all those kind of combinations. So you mm. put your address on the release. Is that why you got so many demos? Yeah. Like and, your home address? Yeah, I didn't know what to do. I mean, yeah, I just looked at other, I just Brilliant. looked at other people's records. They yeah. put their address on it. I, I was just like, you know. yeah, yeah. And and that the, that very that adorable logo of a man or a robot yeah. walking as seen from above was that on there as well? Yeah. So and so, how did that? Did you draw that, or did, did you, well, you, it, well, sounds? Did a Savage Pencil make that? Or oh no, this no, it was a. I mean, Letraset was very popular in those days. You know what Letraset yeah, is? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it was a kind of... You might, you might want to explain that to... Some of our younger listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the t- our teenage listeners. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, Letraset was a way, bef- long before you used kind of computers to do printing and stuff, it was a way of... It was a... It was a... It was a... It was a... Like a template. Template. Yeah, it was yeah. a... Plastic yeah. printed... It was, it was, yeah, basically, if you wanted to do lots of... If you wanted to do kind of smart-looking lettering, you, you could buy a letter set, and they had lots of different typefaces, lots of different fonts, lots of different sizes, shapes, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And you would scratch it onto... It was like, like a transfer. You, yeah. You, you'd, scratch you'd scratch it, it onto the paper. And that's how you built your... And, yeah. So... But they also did... They, they Not only did they do... Uh, fonts, typefaces, they also did some kind of images as well. So, mm. And one of the things they specialised in was architectural images, so that people could use if they were doing a plan. And that's where the little man comes from. It's oh. actually an architectural image. It's an oh. architectural man walking so, through a door. Yeah, <laughs> so, so, so that when somebody with an architect was putting a, a, you know, doing a plan for something, they could put a little man in there as a context for size. And Of course, because it's all got to be seen from, from a above. helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, so, so it's, it's a Letraset, hopefully copyright-free <laughs> <laughs> logo, which... Uh, yeah, so that's, that's that. That's yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, so what happens next? So, I, yeah, I met Frank... We got on really well. I said, well, come, let's make a single, you know. And so that's really when Mute started as a label. And, and that, was that Back to Nature? Back to Nature, yeah. That was Back to Nature. God, and I was dancing to clubs, going just yeah. mental to that record. Yeah. It's not on my list, which is a bit silly. But no still. worries. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, you know, and we went into, into a studio. That's the first time I ever went into a studio to record it. A small stu- eight-track studio in Crystal yeah. Palace. Yeah. And I sort of... Worked on it with him, you know. I suppose I kind of produced it, mm. but I didn't really know what, you know. But we just worked on it together, mm. and it came out the way it did. And it, it was, I mean, I'm really proud of that record, proud of what that, of, of that. And mm. um, and so I'd start, but without really thinking about it, I started a record label. So that was Mute 002. That was Mute 002. Wow. Gosh. I've still got the 12 inch. So, uh, <laughs> so where did Depeche Mode fit into this equation? They well, um, I saw Depeche Mode around ninety at the, towards the end of nineteen eighty, supporting Fad Gadget, at a place called the Bridge House in Canning Town. Okay. It's a small music pub, right? More, you know, more kind of at the time it was a big mod club. Oh. Um, but the, the guy who owned the pub and promoted it, a guy called Terry Murphy, who was a real East End character. He really wanted to support East End artists. Or artists, you know, and fa- and Frank, he Frank was his parents were big East End. You know, they worked in the markets and stuff like that. Mm. Kind of big East End traditional family, right? And and Depeche Mode were 
sort of from the east, the east end spill just spill up the road in Basel, just right? up the road yeah. in Basel. Yeah. So he's he hired he he you know he booked Frank. Yep. And he got these these kids to to support, and I didn't think much about it. I saw you know I didn't I saw them lurking around and. I thought normally, I, you know, I might have gone off to get a bite to eat with with Frank and the, the band, but I thought I'll watch the support band. I don't know. I just felt I felt like it. Yep. And there was these three, three kids, mm-hmm. four kids. Sorry, three, four kids. Um, and they were kids, like seventeen year old kids, in really dodgy, neuromantic kind of costumes, mm. uh, with three cheap sort of, not, you know, simple synths. Yep. T- you know, kind of balanced on beer crates. Yep. And a drum machine and yep. the singer. Who looked about twelve <laughs> had a kind of a, an underlight kind of to make him look goth, gothy. Yep. And they started. And I thought, "Fuck out! This is good." Excuse me, that was unbelievable. It's like an incredible song, really well arranged, very you know, very simple. I mean, it was like almost too too good. Mm. And then I thought, well, maybe that's just a folk. They just do one good song, yeah. and the rest of it's good. They just got better the whole way through, you know. And that was they pretty much played the first album, Speak and Spell. With some a few other bits wow. Of so you listening to just can't get enough and to new life and or, or to, to yeah, not to just can't get enough. That came a little. Oh, so yes, bit. of course. Well, but it was on the speak and spell, but yeah, definitely new life, yeah. dreaming of me, yeah, a photographic, all those wow, all those earlier, the really early versions, and they sounded amazing. I thought there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but it's I didn't quite understand how it all worked, you know. Mm. And so I said to them, uh, I don't quite believe what I was seeing in a way. So yeah. I, so I said, oh. I went back backstage. I went to the little room at the back and said, "Oh, I just to say I really love that. It's really great. Are you playing again soon?" So yeah, we're playing again the following week. So I thought I'd come back again mm. just to make sure I was wasn't yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I brought a couple of I brought, there's a guy on mute who's still on mute called Boyd Rice. On that goes under the name of Non. Oh uh, yeah, Non. He's, yeah, he's a no, kind of a noise artist, but he's totally into pop music as well. And he came along with me, and uh, he said, "God, you man, you got to sign this. This is great." Anyway, I knew that anyway. Yes. And I went back. I said, "I'd love to do a single. Why don't you do a single?" He said, "They said they were kind of being a bit cool." Mm-hmm. And they said, "Yeah, okay, let's do a single and see how it goes." I mean, it was really like that. And weren't they at the time being courted by uh, the majors then and offered um, very a shortly, scene? very shortly afterwards? Yes, it kind of was in a very short period of time because they never really played in London. This mm. is about they played one gig upstairs at Ronnie's or something like that, and. They never really played. They played around Basildon and sort of so the Canning Local. Town. Yeah, Canning Town was about as London as it got for them. Mm. But very soon after that, I mean, I don't know. Uh, it went crazy. There was a what was her name? The um, sounds journalist Betty Boo. Yeah, and she she caught, she latched onto it and just kind of big ex- article. And then they it just happened really fast. And then they started playing gigs in London and going down the Moonlight Club and places like that. But had you, had you got your deal done for a single uh, by this point? Yeah, there was no deal. Just a handshake? Yeah, just put a, a single out? And yeah, that, yeah. yeah, 50-50, like okay. I'd done with... I, because we'd released a few, quite a lot. Well, we'd released about... Well, they, they were Mute 13. Dream okay. of Me was Mute 13. So we'd released a few singles by then. Yeah. We started working with some, some other artists. Right. Like DAF, for instance. Yes. And, uh, right, yes. And non and people like I that. I remember hearing that record on um, on John Peel, Kebab Trauma. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we so we had a sort of little structure. I had one person that that we put out three three albums, which was you know, I had somebody working for me at that point, 
And uh, so I said, yeah, let's put a single out and see how it goes. Said, well, this right. is, I mean, this is, I, I described you as a, as a sonic envelope pusher, but you, you're also a music business envelope pusher and test pilot because of that you, you say 50-50 deal um, mm-hmm. in a sort of almost arbitrary way. But at that time, um, that was incredibly rare. I think only you and Rough Trade probably were, were doing that because mm-hmm. the whole business business model was major label huge advance yeah. um and then band or artist beholden to that company for sometimes yeah. in a very exploitative way and then mm-hmm. you guys came kind of dynamited the dam with this whole sort of this totally new business model which empowered artists so much yeah i mean that was the idea of it it was it meant if it's a profit share that means that they have to somehow be more involved in the process mm. and some artists that works really well for mm. and some it doesn't work so well for mm. We still do some some profit share deals like that, but it doesn't work for everybody because yep. the people, some artists, just say, "No, just give me a royalty, get on with it. I don't want to know about the mar- marketing costs and all that stuff." Yeah. But for then, it was perfect, and they didn't have a lawyer, they didn't have a manager. Did you act, did you not have a contract like no, no, paper? no paper? So you put this record out, but just that's it, handshake. Yeah. No yeah. email, of course, in those days. No email, no nothing in writing, no managers, no lawyers, just direct. Gosh. They got paid. Hard to imagine. Not, not even that sort of that. What was that factory record that written in blood on oh, a napkin? No, <laughs> no, 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 nothing written at all. No, nothing written at all. Not even in blood. Yeah, okay. exactly. Um, so, well, obviously, you saw something great in them, and mm. they must have, by the same token, seen something great in you. Well, they they were already fans of the label, so they knew. You know, they were they were. You know, they. They were, there was a famous club, well, at the time, called Crocs in Rayleigh. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and played that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, uh, and, you know, they, 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 all the DJs there would play all that kind of new electronic music, Human League, you know. Yeah. And they were fans of all that kind of music. Obviously, it influenced them a lot. Yeah. And uh, we, and then we just got on, I don't know. We, they wanted to work with you. And yeah, wanted yeah. To they be said, on beat. yeah. Yeah. And we just we just uh, we just got on, and as time went on, it just developed. You know? Fantastic! Let's, well, yeah, let's, let's hear the record, right? Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. Decades since I've listened to Depeche Mode with uh, with Vince's hand on the tiller. Yeah. Um, so, well, I I mentioned that um, you know you saw something in them and they saw something in you. Mm. So you you signed what were then just four kids from Basel, four children, or, si- or didn't. Or, sign. Well, yeah, actually, actually, even yeah, didn't sign them. Yeah. And um, you so you did it on a spit and a handshake. Yeah. And I I mean, looking back on it, they could have so easily just screwed you over or gone somewhere else or and and later on in their career i mean not just then when they were being caught and i i I read i remember reading that they got offered a staggering amount of money and a a clothing allowance by some record company and they turned all that down for their 50 50 deal with no advance with you yeah i mean that that says a lot about you surely and says a lot about them yeah about both of you there's a lot of honor there yeah and i think because Things happened quickly for them. They started to make some money quite quickly. 
And of course, yeah. the amount of money that they would would make successfully on a 50-50 deal is so... Because they, yeah. they would have been on 10 12% or something on yeah. it with a major deal. Yeah, if they were lucky, yeah. Yeah. And also from from gigs, you know, their costs, you know... So they quite quickly... St- um, they were still at work. Fletcher and Martin, Andy Fletcher and Martin Gore, were working in the city. as like junior office boy type things. Uh, Dave was at college and Vince was on the dole. But Vince was actually the... The leader of the group. He wrote mm. the songs, apart from a couple of instrumentals that Martin wrote. Mm. He wrote the songs. He, he was the hustler. He was, yep. one, he was a really ambitious one. Yep. The others were going, oh, it's quite nice to be in a band. Let's see how it goes. Still got our jobs. He, was, he didn't have a job, and he was, the, he was the one, you know. And he put those songs together, really. And, mm. um, but then, of course, he left the group. Oh. Yeah, well, from, from your point of view, what happened there? I could feel, I mean... This all happened very quickly. So, so I met them in 1980. The first album came out in September, I think, 81. He announced his departure to us in, at that time, but carried on his commitments to the beginning of the next, the following year. Um, I could just feel... I didn't know them very well as people at the beginning. They just seemed like four mates, really. But I realised they weren't really four mates. They were factions, you know, even at that point. Right. Um, not enemies, but they no. weren't. They weren't like they weren't like a close band, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fletch and Martin grew up together. Yep. Uh, Dave was kind of auditioned by them. Mm. Uh, he was the new one, mm. and Vince. They all grew up in the same town, and they all knew the same people. But Vince, I could feel him gradually drifting away from them you know you know when i used because basically I, I i was with them the whole time i was worked with them in the studio i yeah. drove the van i did the sound live you know so i was i was with them a lot i could just see vince kind of withdrawing from the process a bit mm. and i think he never explained it until a long time later i think he suddenly figured out that he could just he didn't need a band to do what he was doing he could do it on his own with a singer mm. and i and I think he just didn't, and also he didn't, even though he was very ambitious and very, he was the kind of leader, I think the f- sort of the kind of the, the fame part of it, he didn't like very much. Right. Um, it's a lot, of, a lot of, a mixture of lots of different things, I think. And don't forget, he was 20, you know, he was, he was 19 at the time, you know, so young kid, you know. But very thoughtful. Very thoughtful. <clears throat> very, very thoughtful. And also probably quite shy. He wanted to put a singer between himself and yeah, the people, he was definitely, right? Definitely sh- yeah, he was definitely shy. But not shy in coming forward about what he was d- doing, but in general shy as a sh- person, yeah. Mm. But what a, pre- what a precocious talent. Yeah, I know. Incredible, really. And, and so, yeah, so he left. In, uh, yeah, he left. And then the, 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 the remaining guys said... We're going to carry on. Yeah. Well, yeah, he, well, here's the interesting thing. It mm. wasn't like when Paul Weller left the jam, it was just like there was a, a nuclear explosion. Yeah. And, that, and the jam were never going to carry on. No. But him leaving Depeche Mode, and you think, well, chief songwriter leaving band, mm. they, their whole future can be summed up in one rude word. Mm. But no, it just, they, mm. like Dave and, uh, was it Dave and Fletch who, who stepped up to the plate? Well, no, they, they, they no, I mean, they all. Well, Dave and Fletch said to me, "Don't worry, Martin, Martin writes songs." Of course, Martin. Yeah, and uh, and he'd written the two instrumentals, which were very good, and he made quite a good musical contribution to the album "Speak and Spell," and you know, sort of extra kind of musical riffs and things like that. But he hadn't written any lyric, you know. Mm. But so, he. So you did worry. Well, I. 
I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't worried because, first of all, from a first of all, I was in a much better position than I could would was ever going to be. Right. I would have been without it. So, from a personal point of view or a label point of view, I didn't worry because it was like we've already, done well. We've done. It's already, it was already. Done. It was already like so much more success, commercially successful than I could have ever imagined. Yep. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. You know. Okay. The band, you know, were, okay, they left their jobs by then, and they mm. really wanted to, and they were successful, and they wanted to make it. They wanted to carry on, and that's fine. Mm. And Martin wrote wrote songs. He'd been writing songs for years, you know, with different bands before, even mm. though he was only nineteen at the time. Mm. And so, it's okay. So he wrote some songs. Let's give it a go. <laughs> Let's give it a go. But it was a very different work, a very different process at that point because he'd written songs, but he he didn't have a vision exact really at that moment how they should be presented. Or played or where Vince had everything really mapped out in his head every last beat every last mm. part every last sound for Martin it was we well, as you say it was Cass- you know, the demos were Casio and foot and foot tap yes so you'd have a Casio <laughs> would play that and tap his foot and then we had to make it up from there you know as a, yeah. as a group of people and that and obviously you know in some ways that was a lot more interesting for people because with Vince it was this is the way it's going to be yes with them it's like how are we going to do this more like a, a proper band like a band yeah. anyway yeah like a band <laughs> And um, so we started the first single we put out, which was written by Martin, was See You, which was actually ended up being the biggest Depeche single at that point. Uh-huh. So uh huh. So that proved that actually. That gave everybody a lot of confidence yes. that we could move very, forward. Very important thing. If yeah. that had flopped out, maybe yeah. some internal yeah. stresses and. Who oh. knows? But, but it was a really strong song and we managed to get it to sound good and everything. and... Yeah, and it became a, yeah, it was number two, I think. And then, how involved were you in the the shaping of the of those those records at that point? You were in the studio with the guys going. Yeah, I was. I mean, I was kind of co-producing. Right. Yeah, and I and I kind of knew a bit more about the technical side of things. So I was kind of helping them get what they want, um, helping them get sounds, helping them. Mm. But they soon got the hang of it, you know, and just push keeping them going. Really, you yeah. know. Just like, you know, just sort of saying that's good, that's not good, let's let's move on, you know. Okay. That kind of thing. And, um, yeah. Yeah, great. Mm. And so were you, were you getting increasingly busy with other artists at this point as well, signing other... Well, projects? no, I, I, that kind of signing stopped at that point. Right. A bit... I mean, there was like there was a, we were a small company, there was three or four of us. But you had one land right in your lap, which was Erasure. Well, Yazoo. Yeah, it was Yazoo, of course. Yeah, yeah, yes, Yazoo first, and then yeah, 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 yeah. So what happened was, yeah, Vince Clark left Depeche Mode. Yeah, and he did a demo with this girl called Alison Moyer. Yes. another local girl from Billericay. So not exactly Basildon, but no, close, but pretty close but enough, close, to close the, enough for home yeah. to keep it real. Yeah, yeah. And that was only you. Yeah, which was an amazing song. Yes, and you know, incredible voice. All those things that it was, you know. I mean, that could have been on my list. There's so many tra- tracks that could have uh, yeah, been on my list. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a huge success. And then that, that so, all bef- so by ni- beginning of 1982, yeah. when that came out, yeah. I had two big projects, projects and, on. Yeah. yeah, really big. I mean, you know, Yazoo took off in a bigger way than Depeche did. They, for a while, they were bigger. It was bigger than Depeche, right? Because at this point, Depeche Mode hadn't cracked America, so y- y- yeah. they weren't the biggest band in the world at that point. <laughs> no, they weren't. Definitely weren't the biggest band in the world. But and and uh, and Yazoo was had, had somehow more mainstream sound, shall we say? 
Yeah, they're more of a top of the pops band, yeah, weren't they? Yeah, but, I mean, Depeche were on top of the pops all the time. Yeah. They're all on top of the pops all the time. You know, yeah. they're incredible top of the popses at those days. You know, you had Soft Cell, Human League, yeah. Depeche Mode. You know, yeah. they were, you know, really good. But, um, and so, in answer to answer to your question, I was, you know, those two projects were more than I could handle. Right. Plus, I was in the studio with Depeche. Yeah. For long, long periods of time, and as they carried on those periods of time you know the, the studio time became longer and longer and more extended That's and, what's and you seen. had you had some big club records so i'm thinking of situation for example by yazoo which was yeah. must have been one of the biggest hippest club records in the world at that time right you yeah francois k's remix yeah you must have i presume you were at dance Ateria or wherever and mm-hmm. expert did you go to many of those sort of yeah legendary mm-hmm. early 80s New York clubs. I did. I, well, Yazoo played at uh, Paradise Garage. Okay. Which was incredible. Wow. Yeah, yeah. First time I'd seen a club without alcohol. Yes. No, but I went to the Mud Club and Don Satiri and Mars yeah. and all those places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, because they were playing our records, well, like you crazy. Had, you must have had some of the biggest records there mm. in New York at that time. Mm. I'm sure you did. Yeah, and the Just Can't Get Enough 12 inch was really big. Yeah. And, you know, Shout 12 inch and you know, and DAF and stuff. So yeah, those they were that kind of. D-O-R, they called it, dance-orientated rock. Yeah. Must have been an incredibly exciting period for you, having this massive commercial success in the UK, yeah. this really hip thing going on in America. Yeah. Was, and were, your, were the acts travelling well? Were, were these acts having success in Germany, France, yeah. Australia, all of these places at well, this point? Depeche instantly had success in Europe. I mean, I remember the first little tour we did of Europe of clubs... Uh, we went to Germany, we went to Hamburg, Paris, Brussels, Amsterdam. Yep. Played the kind of place that everybody would play in that mm. sort of level, smallish places. Yeah. And people went nuts. Yeah. And I couldn't quite believe it, you know. I really couldn't believe it. And, yeah. Uh, Again, we have to keep reminding ourselves pre-internet, so people would have been buying this stuff, you know, maybe import the import store yeah. in... Yeah, or the press, you know, a little bit of press. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Very different mm. routes to... And very mm. harder, just mm. harder to, to break globally mm. in that pre-internet era. It yeah. did take longer, didn't it? So, And the thing about Tepesh that I noticed when I f- first saw them, the very first time I saw them, because yeah. they had some of their friends at that gig, and, was that they were people during the songs, people weren't watching them. They were dancing. Mm. So they would. It was. They were. You know, live like a club band, like a mm. show band. It wasn't band. just standing. No, they step. were. No, they were actually dancing like they would have done in a club. Yeah. And then they'd stop and clap. Yeah. And then the next song would come, and they would dance with each other. They weren't watching the. weren't interested in what the band were doing. Okay. That, that was happening in Europe, but not in. No, no, UK. that happened in, in London. But that was in London. And then I remember the going to the first gig. They were well, second gig they did in Europe, which is the, the Mark Haller in Hamburg, which is kind of seated. Mm. semi-seated I thought I wonder what's going to happen because these people are going to sit down because the, the band you know this is what, how the the, UK, the the London gigs had all the UK gigs had gone and now they just all stood up on the seats and dancing and, and it was great it was great yeah so. okay so then so, so we've got Depeche and um, Yazoo kind of growing in parallel what talk keep us mm. moving through keep, the timeline so yeah so Yazoo split up after two albums. Yeah. Vince and Alison didn't really get on very well. And in fact, the second album, uh, You and Me Both, I don't think they were ever in the studio together at any point. Ah, right. Oh, it's one of those. It's one of those. 
Had no. it started beautifully and gone down? Well, it started. It started. I wouldn't say it started. But it started by accident. Right, another accident. You know, just like well, Let's, he knew he'd seen a play with an R and B band. I mean, R and B. You know, yeah, Doctor Feelgood R type R and B. Right, uh, locally somewhere, mm. and she thought, oh, she's got give a nice, it a go. Who give One it of a those, go. yeah, see what it sounds like. You know, but they maybe didn't. They weren't like you know. It wasn't that they were tight. No, a tight unit. I think. That, I think you know. The, I think the, the, at the beginning, the excitement of the whole thing kept kind of was, was kept them sort of tight and, and then they kind of gradually drifted. disagreements musical differences oh, yeah. ego differences whatever uh, you want to call it yeah, yeah so yeah. that that ended and then vince so vince had two successful groups globally successful groups in two years pretty much amazing and but neither of them have, have but they both <laughs> no, split yeah. up yeah he left yeah both he, he and then uh he had a, then he did a single with fergal sharkey uh, never, never. I don't remember that. No. Oh, that was a big hit. Was it? Yeah, okay. for, missed that one. Yeah, that was great. That's a really great track. Right. And then he decided. Then he, then he he kind of was lost a little bit. Didn't know what he wanted to do. He was messing around the studio a lot. But didn't quite finish stuff. And and then he said, oh, "I want to form. I want to. I want to do a new band." Okay. Actually, he was one of the first people. He what he wanted to do was do a project with guest singers. Mm. Which hadn't really happened up to that point. That was no. kind of a, but none of the people that he wanted to work it didn't work out anyway. Okay. But Fergal Sharkey was the first of those, and that worked out. And it was a single, but after, anyway. So he, so he said, "I'm going to form a band. I'm going to start auditioning singers." So he did that, and he came and uh, with Flood, the uh, producer, yes, who we'd started to work with, and so he auditioned and um, chose Andy Bell. He found this kid, Andy Bell, very young kid from Peterborough. And they made an album, and it was a flop, a real flop. So it was oh. Vince's first taste of, taste of the other side. Yeah, which, in one sense, he actually, I think, and one half of him enjoyed that. And they worked hard. They went on the road, tra- back of a transit van, you know, transit van. Did the, you know, he went from playing really big shows with Yazoo around the world to playing college, you know, like universities in the back of a van. Mm. Mm. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed that side of it very much, you know. You as the label must have been disappointed. Well, we were, as a label and a band, on the other side, you know, we were both really frustrated by the fact that nothing was happening with these tracks and we didn't know... Um, we, nobody could figure it out. You know, we were working with all the pluggers and all the other people we were working with. Nobody could figure it out, you know. I mean, the, the, the time had changed. It was, a, it was also a bad time for depression in this country. Right. But that didn't matter that much because they were already well-established around the world yeah but you know it was you know it's hard to, to program yazoo sorry erasure with bruce springsteen mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. if, as if you're a radio programmer you probably know this a lot better than i do yeah and it was all that big kind of 80s everybody talks about the 80s the 80s sound there are lots of different 80s sounds obviously mm. yeah. there was the kind of big kind of explosive you know rock big stadium rock sound and they just didn't fit into it you know so and, and so yeah. It got to the point where I almost said, "Look, if we can't, you know, we put out three or four singles from the first album, nothing happened with any of them. No airplay to speak of, no sales. Mm. They're building a live fan base. They mm. were playing live, but it was, you know. Mm. And so I said, "Look, Vince, I don't, I, I, I'm at a loss. I don't know what to do. I think you made a great record. It's not getting out there. You know, maybe we should have another go. And if it doesn't work, we should, you should, you know, if you, if you, if you're not happy, we should, you know, part company, you know." I mean, on a very friendly basis, we're talking. But yep. I was like, 
tearing my hair out. I had hair <laughs> at that point. I tore it out. Yes. And, um, and then I remember we had a studio. We've always had a studio at Mute. And um, Flood, who produced the first album, was working with Vince on a, a new track, on just one track. And he phoned me up. I said, I think we've got, we got something. So I went, I went to the studio and listened to Sometimes. And I, th- I, th- yeah, I, th- I felt it. I definitely felt this was there was something about that. I knew I, th- I really had a good feeling about it. And I remember we, we finished it off and we, and we put it out. And they were on tour at the time. And I just remember it started to get airplay. It just touched the seventy-five, which was a big at that time was quite important. The seventy-five. Yep. And it just went. It was just exploded from there. And I remember the gigs getting more and more mental. And touring with the Mean Fiddler, they'd been booked in because they booked the tour before there was a hit. So they booked in the Mean Fiddler in Harleston, which is a, you know holds about four hundred people. Yeah, I think we ended up doing four or five of them, and the queues around the block, people going nuts. But within you know months, they were playing the NEC and all that kind of stuff. So the, the, you know sometimes was a track that really was a really important one. Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. Ooh, So sometimes the, uh, the the one that you managed to crack erasure with, yeah. and to um, cast away all of that frustration, and of course while you were tearing your hair out, trying, failing, and then succeeding brilliantly with erasure, Depeche Mode. Meanwhile, I guess the key point was well, you can tell me, probably going into studio with Francois Kevorkian and, and the making personal Jesus. Wasn't that what propelled them to sort of U2 status in America? I think, no, well, that came a bit later. I, th- I mean, I think what happened was that they went in, it was a tour before the Violator album that really took them into, into, the, into the American consciousness. Yes, it was tours, wasn't it, rather yeah. than records? Yeah. Because they were still, there was, the airplay was still very limited in America to those kind of alternative stations. They never crossed over onto the pop side, you know. But they, but they, the momentum had built up, especially on the West Coast, and well, the two coasts, you know. But the LA, they were all over the radio in LA, and they had tickets on sale to um, to play at the Rose. They they took a big leap of faith and they decided to play the Rose Bowl Stadium. Which is a seventy eighty thousand seater stadium. Christ, they already got to points where they're playing like fifteen thousand. I mean, obviously we're we're moving on in time now. This sort of late eighties, they'd gone from being really a club band. When people used to say, "In America, you know, you don't have a guitarist, you don't have a drummer, you'll never get out of the clubs, small clubs," and they so we just carried on doing that. And then, but L.A. because K Rock in particular, the radio, the alternative radio station, was playing Depeche Mode mm. like nonstop. Yeah. I remember they booked um, to play in, a, I can't remember the name of the place now, but like a 1,500-seater, which would be, you know, yep. that sold out in like an hour. They went to a 4,000, that sold out in an hour. Then they went up to a 15,000 to Irvine Meadows in Orange County, which is like kind of a shed, they call them in America, which is kind of open air. And then from that from that point, they just went, it went in, in, in those parts of the States. There, there was a riot 
I mean, a proper riot when the, when the they were doing an in-store in the warehouse in L.A. Were you there for the riot? I sadly wasn't there for the riot. Shame. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that would be- but, it was, but it was helicopters and police cars and a proper full-on riot. Wow. Okay. Um, and that became kind of news here as well as there. Yeah. So the perception was Depeche Mode are massive in America. Actually, it wasn't strictly true. They were massive in LA. Yes, bit of a self-fulfilling yeah, thing, though, right? Yeah. If, if enough people mm. say you're massive, you become massive. Don't and you? then they did the gig that, at the Rose Bowl, which yes. was a, which became a film yes. made by D. A. Pennybaker, right. legendary, who did Monterey Pop and all uh-huh, that. He uh-huh. did a documentary music film. Yeah. And there was a scene in the film at uh, the Rosewell Stadium during the song uh, Never Let Me Down where 80,000 people are kind of waving their arms yeah. in the air. And it was like an amazing shot, amazing, amazingly well shot. Mm. And that we managed to get that on some TV show here. And then that was, okay, they're massive in America. Yeah. And uh, they, were never, they weren't that massive in America. They were massive in L.A. They were big in New York, Chicago, you know, Chicago San Francisco, but the whole bit in the middle, nobody even heard of them. And so we went back in the studio after that tour yeah. to make the next record, which was what ended up being Violator. Worked with Flood for the fir- they worked with Flood for the first time. Yeah, and we we'd already decided that we wanted we'd like Francois to mix the album. Yeah, Francois K. Yep, because you know for lots of reasons, but but craft work that Electric Cafe sounded so great and his thing anyway. And we did per- the first track we did was Personal Jesus. Yeah. And um, we thought that would be, we wanted to do that as a teaser track. It was going to come out, I think the album was due to come out in March of 90 or whatever. And we, we, wanted, we thought we'd put out something in between to keep the momentum going in America. Yeah. But we thought Personal Jesus was going to be a kind of an underground record. We didn't think it was going to cross over. Mm. Partly because it had the word Jesus in it. Well, I was going to say you didn't think that a record with the word Jesus in it wasn't going to cross was filling the gaps to middle to middle America that you were missing out off your uh, off your sales. And um, of course, it's always great when you don't expect something and it happens. That became, I think, at the time, the biggest selling twelve inch that Warner's had ever put out. Right. And then we came back. Then we finished the album. We came back with Enjoy the Silence. Yeah. Which is even bigger. Yes. And then the album, yeah, was was huge. So you've got this. So now you've got arguably the biggest band in the world, and things probably can't get much better for you financially. Or you're thinking, you know, and you're and you're still an independent yeah. label. I mean, you yeah. obviously you have big these big distribution mm-hmm. deals with, with with people. I'm guessing that you you know you're thinking, oh, I can't get any better than this. And then suddenly, I guess Moby happens. And then, and then you've got the most synced record in the whole world, not just yeah. the... YouTube. But what happened between was not so... Between Violator and Play was probably the... Towards the end of that was, was probably the, the least good part of Mutes in terms... It was most, for me personally, the most frustrating part mm. because for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, it was the pressure on Depeche, not from me or anybody else, but in ter- to follow that up was very very high and you know it's, it's well documented the kind of problem personal problems the band had mm. and how getting through all that and they made songs of faith and devotion which is a great album yeah that only sold you know five million copies um but everybody was happy with that but the band were in but not in a good way at that point you know they start you know they were their their habits had become really dangerous i think and so that was really d- quite a dark period 
on that side of things. Was it, was it dark in terms of your... Did your relationship with them start to really suffer because suddenly there were My bust-ups and... The relationship, no, the relationship is, with the band is, in general was still, very, was still very good. I think the relationship within the band was not, was not good. Right. Um, you did well then to still maintain a... Because sometimes the label become the brunt of... Yeah, no, that wasn't ever the case. But, um, you know, and the manager, they, by that time they had a manager who did, a, you know, was very helpful in keeping the whole thing going. Yeah. And then, you know, and the erasure started to go down a bit. Yep. Depeche weren't really making records for quite a long time. Nick Cave was doing very well. Mm. Of course, because you had Nick Cave on. Yeah, yeah the Bad Seas yeah, on the label. Yeah, for 30 and, years, yeah. And Warren Ellis and the whole, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, that was doing really well, but not at that kind of level. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of projects. We had a lot of sort of... We had a great time at that. I mean, there were some really good things we were doing. We, we started Rhythm King. Yeah, with course, Martin Heath and, With those smashes. Yeah, S-Express. S-Express, Bomb, Bomb the, ba- the Bass. Betty Boo, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, and Blast First, who had Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr. I mean, it was amazing. That was late 80s. Hmm. Yeah. Because what, what, just I had feels, no idea feels, you were involved with that. That's amazing. Yeah. Because yeah. when I left... Because basically, I was in the studio with Depeche Mode for six years. And I was getting frustrated. We were all getting... It was the time had come for me to get out of the studio mm. and get on with running a record company. Mm. And I hadn't signed any for ages. And I, and I just by chance met these guys. Well, I met Martin Heath and James Horrocks, who yeah. started Rhythm King. And I met Paul Smith, who started Blast First. Yeah. I think this... Um, I, I don't... I'm not in that world. I'm not in the house music world. I'm not in the guitar, Lower East Side. It wasn't called grunge in those days, world. But these guys really know what they're doing, and I love the music. So yep. let's go, you know. So we did. So yeah, we, I mean, it was 80, 87, 88, 89. We had Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Junior, Butthole Surfers, S Express, all that lot, you know. Wow. The base, which was you know mental time. Yeah. But fun, you know, up to a point. And yeah. you say it was a frustrating time. There's a there's a lot of success right there with that with that. Yeah, list. that was a bit earlier. That I'm sorry, I, I rewound a bit. No, that, oh, okay. was, that yeah. was great. That was pre-Violator. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But then, yeah, so the '90s, and then the, the Britpop thing happened, hmm. which was very counterintuitive for what we were doing. You know, the kind of music the Brit. We were always trying to push the envelope, and I felt that Britpop was pushing the envelope that way. Yeah, and mm. the you, I mean, you remember the Britpop era? You couldn't move in the media without Brit, you know Britpop. Yep. Of yep. course, there was a, on the underground side there was good techno scene. Yes, but it wasn't you know commercially big, but it was. Mm. I mean, there was a commercial end of it, mm. but Britpop were really. And none of the, I didn't want to work with Britpop bands. None of the bands that I worked with, they were kind of they they they, they were kind of over, overlooked really in in the, in the media sense, press and radio. Mm. Was it was Berlin uh, an outlet for you to get away from from Britpop then? Because I know that you've got <laughs> offices there, I know that you've got a yeah. place there, you've got a great interest, obviously. With, yeah. with, you know, well, but my music. my yeah, I. I I kind of my Berlin relationship started in the early eighties. First of all, because the birthday party, uh, the birthday party, lived there, and I worked with the birthday party. They were on four AD, and then they came to mute, and mm. then they they became Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds. But they were mm. living there. We worked in Hansa. Mm-hmm. I loved that place so much. Then we did three depressions. That's just you you spin past Hansa, but that's that amazing, <laughs> yeah, Spanta, yeah, legendary <laughs> yeah. recording studio where so much amazing stuff happened. Yeah, well, right? that's where Bowie did Low and Heroes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you two did stuff there, a lot yeah. of stuff. We did, we did three albums there. Yeah, 
Depeche, I mean, we being Depeche. Yes, yes. Plus yes. other artists like Einstein and Neubaut. And, yeah, I was going to say, you, you must have um, come across Blixer Bargelt and all of those. Yeah, like, well, they very... were mute for quite a long time, yeah. And Diamanda Gallas, who's American, but she was she was living there. So, yeah, yeah that's a whole other thing. But yeah, yeah. And then when the wall came, so we were quite big involved in that soul scene. And then the wall <laughs> came down and the whole techno thing exploded with clubs like Trezor and... Yes. And... You know, I was, you know, I loved Trezor and those guys, and that's around the time Rhythm King ended. Yes. And we started Novamute, which is yes. a, more of a tech, straight ahead techno label. Yes. And we would distribute, we were putting out the Trezor records through Novamute. Yeah. As well as working with people like Speedy J, yeah. Plastic Man, yeah. and some of the great electronic music innovators of that era, you know. Mm. Cy Begg, who's a lovely Cy man. Begg, you yeah. still got his publishing, I know. Yeah, yeah. Cy Begg, and yeah, a lot, you know, we worked with some really, you know, the harder guy, you know, Adam Bayer, people like that, kind of mm-hmm. more hard stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a good time. The whole Berlin Trezor thing. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. So, and uh, Moby, should we? Do you want to tell us how you first came yeah. across Moby? Yeah. Well, Moby, actually, Rhythm King licensed Go from Instinct Records in yeah. New York. It was a one-off license, and that yes. was a huge. That became a big hit. Yeah. Um, then Moby, don't know what exactly happened between them, but it didn't work out. Yeah. And um, we got in touch with Moby. The, the guys who were running Novamute said, oh, you've got to sign Moby. We, we just saw mm. him play live. You'll love him, blah, mm. blah, blah. Because I, I didn't really know Moby. It was just a license, a one-off thing. I didn't. Yes. I hadn't met him, I don't think, even at that point. Yeah. But, we, we put out, I signed... Um, uh, a Moby record under the name UHF. Do you remember that record? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did that for XL. Um, okay. So that was before he was Moby, funnily yeah, enough. But yeah. again, it was it was kind of a tracky yeah. thing. Yeah. Although his manager, I th- would his manager Eric Hall have been? I think he was in the equation. At even that, in those days. Even, even yeah, I think he might have been. He definitely was at the beginning of yeah. our relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He still yeah. is, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So okay, so yeah, so yeah, so we signed Moby. Yeah, actually, we did actually sign Moby. Yes, you actually had some paperwork on that one. We've been going for twenty years. Let's (laughs) and um, he did his first record, which was uh, his first album, Everything Was Wrong, which which did really well. It was kind of in kind of a more poppier dance version of Go. You know, he was in still very much an electronic music world. Yeah, Um, and it did really well, and he toured on it and everything was going extremely well mm. and then he decided to make a punk rock record just at the time when in America <sighs> the Chemical Brothers yeah. Prodigy yes. uh, Fatboy Slim were all or his contemporaries Electronica was Electronica, exploding as yeah. it was called yes. Electronica as the Wall Street Journal coined that phrase I believe did they? yeah right. that's why I try and avoid using it mm. um, and maybe made a punk rock record yeah and he made an okay punk rock record he didn't make a great punk rock record did animal you, rights. Did you try? Did you say to him at the time, "Look at the business that these guys are doing here. They've all, you know, and you're going, you're going in the other direction." Of course, we had those lot of those talks, discussions, but with Eric as well, of course, yeah. the manager who was. But in the end, if you believe in the artist, which I believed in, I, I, it was it was difficult, but he, we went through it with him, you know. And who knows if he hadn't done that. Maybe he wouldn't have done play. Yes. Who, who knows? Who knows? But you thought, mm. let's back the artist, yeah. Let's back the artist. The record did really badly. Yes. Um, 
his he was you know his touring went like that to playing to like 250 people at the water rats kind of thing Oof. it was like you know and then we um he started writing a new record and he was definitely wanted to make him more it started out as a sort of more electro pop record mm. and eric and i were not sure if it was a bit too wasn't quite didn't feel like moby mm. felt like he was trying too hard or something mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then uh and then he played me one track, played us one track, which was... Um, uh, Is it Why Does My Heart? It wasn't actually Why Does My Heart. It was well, well, Find My Baby, I think, which was a, the first thing I heard where he used those kind of bluesy sample things. Yes. And we said, maybe that's the go, that, go that way. Yeah. You know? And, he wasn't, and then, he, then he went that way, and he made that album. Yeah. And... Again, we had a lot of frustration. We, we thought it was amazing. How people, the kind of feedback I was getting from people who you wouldn't normally get feedback from, loving the record, made me feel that it could be huge. Mm. But it took a while to break through. We we put out three singles mm-hmm. without really that much we, without that much success. Okay. And then um, was it an advert or something that did it that cracked it? It was a combination of things. And then we we said we said we should just. Let's not overthink this. Let's just put out our favourite track. So we put out Why Does My Heart Feel So Bad? And there was a combination of things. Pete Tong started to play it. Yeah. Um, another track was, was had a big sink. Find My Baby had a big sink. And all of a sudden it just went nuts. You yeah. had a perfect storm. Yeah, very. So I remember we did a, we deliberately did, we did... He did a Scala show, which was about 700 people. And the, the idea was to do two Scala shows. I said, no, let's wait. Let's do one... It was just as wise as my heart come out, and let's do the other one six weeks later at the end of the tour. Okay, one during, at the beginning, one at the end. During the during the cycle of the of the track, it was hilarious. The first one, I think, it was fairly almost sold out, but you know, struggled. The second one, everybody, everybody was on your know, case, but it wasn't. It just it wasn't. Yeah. All, it was like you know, celebrities wanted to go there. Like everybody wanted to review it. It was hilarious, really. And this was in a six weeks about space. a six week period. Yeah. Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. Why does my heart Wow, it's interesting hearing that. I remember, I remember the, the amount of hate that that got, purely based on how successful it was. I yeah. think all of the, all of the cool police said no, it's no good because it's so successful, and all the you know, all the hipsters um, before hipsters really existed <laughs> saying no, 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 no. And I think uh, speaking as someone, the only person I know who got zero in a mass paper. Um, wasn't uh, maybe one of the only artists to ever get zero out of ten in an album? Yeah, the review. album. Even before it was successful, he got a zero out of ten full page <laughs> review in the Melody Maker. Oh, zero out of ten. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. But it's better to get zero out of ten like, than two out of ten, isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, because it's <laughs> yes. yeah, because it's, yeah. it's it's you're you're the other end of the you know you are the best at, at being at having no marks. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> But a, an amazing, an amazing success story. Mm. So, um, so yeah. So post this mm. enormous Moby success, what mm. what happened for for Mute then? Well, immediately before the Moby success, we were, you know, in, in spite of the success we'd had, 
we were not in very good shape as a company financially. Okay. You know, various reasons. But, um, and I was, you know, I, I needed to kind of raise, I wanted to raise some money somehow to keep the thing going for a while. Mm. But then, just as things were getting really bad, it's like the cavalry came over the hill in the shape of Moby and um, ended up, set that sold about 10, 12 million albums as well in the end. And I, I'd had a difficult time with Mute, with, with bus- on the business side of Mute for like four, three or four years. And I kind of had had enough of that in a way. And, yeah. And I'd got a very... There's a guy called Emmanuel de, de Bertel. Yeah, I know him, yeah. Who, yeah. I'm sure you know, mm. who at the t- who I'd known... We, we grew up together in the business, basically. He promoted mm. a fad gadget gig in Lyon in 1980. He then became very successful at Virgin France, who were mm. our licensee. Mm. And then and then he became the head of continental Europe at EMI. And throughout those years, he was trying to buy Mute. And I, I said, look, I'm in, a, I'm in a good position now. You know, a year ago, we were in a really terrible situation. Now we're in a, you know, tell me what, you know, tell me what, you, what you're going to offer. You know, what, what, this is what I want, I said. This, if I'm going to... You know, in terms of creative control, autonomy, blah blah blah, and he gave basically he said yes to everything. So we we did it. I sold it, sold it to EMI for better or worse, and for a few years it was great, until he parted company with EMI, and then it didn't never got terrible. But it, it, the whole point was he understood what Mute was about and how it could we could all work together. And then after that we were just another label with a couple of successful artists. And it, and it, so at that point, did you regret the EMI deal? I don't know. I don't, think I, I don't think I regretted it. No. I, I don't think I regretted it. I just didn't think it was very... It wasn't working out. And, you know, so that had to, we had to make it work out. And ultimately, after a few years, it was it, EMI was going through its own problems at that point. It was yeah, being sold. problems, yes. So, you know, we were kind of getting sucked into their problems. And there came a point where... And I got on quite well with the EMI people. You know, it wasn't like we had terrible fights. We kind of both said, look, it's not really, you know, the things that I wanted to do, which they couldn't do, the things they wanted me to do, I didn't want to do. It wasn't working out. I said, let's just part company as, in, a, in as good a way as we can, you know. So we left EMI. They obviously owned the catalogue, but we brought a lot of the artists with us. You know, we brought Goldfrap, uh, you know, um, a lot of, you know, Goldfrap, Liars, Erasure, a lot of, a lot of the artists historically we'd had came into the new company, into the new Mute. Mm. And the first, and then we started signing new artists for the new label, and the first artist we signed was Yaysayer, mm-hmm. American band who are, I think are fantastic. And the labels were fully independent and have been for five years. Yeah. Still working, as I said, with people like Goldfrap and Erasure, mm. which is great. Mm. And lots of new artists too. Tell me, tell me about uh, signing New Order. Yeah, well that, I mean, I'd, New Order hadn't made an album for 10 years. The catalogue was with another, with a major label, with Warner Brothers. Um, Nicky Kafalis, who you probably know, yeah, yeah, was the, has been doing our promotion for years and also doing New Order's promotion for even longer. Factory, you know. Gosh, didn't Nicky even work on like those Rhythm King records? Yeah, yeah, she worked on. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, 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 she did. Yeah, yeah, wow. And she's still doing most all our promotion. Wow. And she t- she said, look, New Order. I think New Order might be looking for a deal. You interested? And I said, "Yes." Yeah. So well, she said, "I'll have. A, I'll tell them you're interested." And then, I mean, I knew the band a bit. Yep. I mean, from not from you know from going out really, and um, so we had a meeting. It went really well. Immediately, Bernard said, "I'll send you some music." 
Yeah. And I was, I mean, it was early, very early versions of the of what basically is the album. Yeah. No vocals at that point, but I thought, I mean, you know, you, you always get when you get put in, you don't often get put in a situation like that where you have a great legendary band, historically unbelievably important band. Yeah. Who, but have made a record for ten years. You, you're nervous because you want it to be good. Yes. Uh, but it might not be. It might be not good. You know. It could be them just getting back together to, to whatever. Um, so obviously I was nervous about that. And if it wasn't, if it hadn't been, if I didn't find it exciting, I wouldn't have done it because I think it would have just been a very painful experience for everybody. Yeah. And but I, what I heard, I thought it sounded great. And so we just we said did yeah, we did it, you know. And um, they produced. They, Tom Tom Rowland from Chemical mm. Brothers produced two, two and a half tracks. They did the rest of themselves mm. in their own studios up in Macclesfield. Yeah. And uh, I, I kind of got involved a bit on the A and R side, but it was mostly not creative, really. Apart from helping them, they had a lot of songs and a lot of different versions of each song. Yeah. And so we kind of sifted through a lot of that to decide which ones to go forward with. And then it was more about just keeping it on track for them, you know, getting it mixed. Great. And um, I mean, couldn't have been happy with with, with the result, you know. And I think that the general public, you know, think you know it's gone it's gone down extremely well. Trailblazers, Daniel Miller. So that was New Order. And just bearing in mind the conversation that we just had, I, I, I've, there's one question I'm dying to ask, which is, who's the one that got away? Because you've, you've, got, you've got a New Order on mute, legendary band, legendary label. You know, nothing but good, in my mind, can come from that. Yeah. Um, Nick here will admit to you, even before a, a couple of drinks, that he passed on... Um, on Aphex Twin. Sure. Got a 16-year-old Richard D. James's demo and uh, and passed up on it. So who who's the one is there one that got away or even one that you wish that you had signed? Cuz you know you've got if you ask Mark Jones of Wall of Sound who he wishes he'd signed, he'd say it was Depeche Mode. Mm. Who who do you wish that you signed that you haven't signed? Well, I think that's a tricky one uh, because you've got to be careful what you wish for sometimes. <laughs> um we briefly worked with Kraftwerk when we were at EMI, which was amazing. Yeah. Because um, they kind of fell into, you know, within the EMI restructuring, they fell into our into Mute's lap, which I was absolutely delighted about. It was it was reissue stuff, but nevertheless, it had a Mute logo on it. That's, so that, you know, we, we worked with Can, who were one of my other, we worked for 25 years on the Can catalogue. I wished, I mean, in terms of bands, there were, in retrospect, I don't, I'm not, I don't wish I had signed them, but at the time I really had. You know, there was, um, the Yeah Yeah Yeahs we really tried to sign. Right. A couple of others we really tried to sign. The Claxons at the time we tried to sign. Ah, yeah. But, you know, the Yeah Yeahs have gone to really great things. The Claxons are sort of, you know, whatever. But, I mean, the one that I really would have... The one, that I, the one that's very successful that I d- deliberately turned down, you know, turned down was Nine Inch Nails. Oh, my God, really? Uh, I thought it was too much like too much of the stuff already on mute. Yeah. 
in a way at the time it was you know, like Knights of Reb and Lieback and stuff like that yes yes gosh I'm stunned I'm, I'm, I didn't I'm have st- the vision to see where it could have oh. gone yeah I mean I, I just think that, that, that passing on stuff is is as much part of the process as signing stuff it's mm. just the two go hand in hand so when somebody goes like well how could you pass on well in the same way that I could have signed that it's mm. just—it's all part of the. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, the universe is in balance. You've, you've got the, to other, one I, yeah. Yeah, the other one. The other one I passed on, which I was, which I'm, it's actually even more, which I really regret more from a. I mean, it's a great record, but more from a financial point of view, is the piano by Michael Nyman. Oh wow! Oh, yeah, the gosh. soundtrack to that film, which became, and he really, really wanted us to put it out, but I'd been burnt on a few soundtrack albums up to that yeah. point, yeah. and I, and I just couldn't deal with it. But that's that's huge. I mean, in sync and stuff like that, amazing. That's more, and it's a great record. So it's not like purely commercial. Mm. The wow. one that I, the one that I the other one that I really wanted, which I didn't get, which is the Neu catalog, right? The German band, yeah. Neu. Mm. Ten years we tried to get that, and the two guys in the everybody the the two guys in the band, original members, Klaus Dinger and Michael Rota, they wanted to do it. We would have been licensed from Universal. They they wanted to do it. Everybody wanted to do it, but the two guys hated each other so much they wouldn't get in the same room to sign a contract. They oh. be, not in the same room. They didn't want their names on the same piece, piece of, paper. of paper. Oh God, that's a lot of hate. Oh. Yeah. oh dear, that's a lot of waste of energy. What a shame because that because oh. mute would be obviously be the yeah. perfect Ten years. perfect place for for Noi to yeah. be. Yeah. Well, um, we've, we've sadly got to end this fascinating um, look through your life and mm-hmm. uh, and end it as we end everything with this bizarre question that, that 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 but it's interesting in in that it i mean hopefully makes people come up with something a little bit different which is that if aliens were gonna come down and 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 destroy the planet and you could you could save it just with one piece of culture yeah that being music yeah what would you give to them to save planet earth what would be your tune to save the world well, it's really, there's no question in my mind that it should be Lieback, the, the uh, Slovenian band, and Life is Life. Um, the Liebacher band I've worked with for a very long time, aesthetically and in many ways, they really embody what I, what Mute is, I think. They've never had the crossover success. But this last year, 2015, was one of the most bizarre, interesting events that I've experienced in, well, probably the most, actually, in my entire time in the industry which was going to North Korea with Lieback they were the first western rock band they wouldn't call themselves a western rock band ever to play in North Korea wow I, wow. I, well, I read something about it I didn't know that you'd been that you were part of that you were yeah. there oh yeah wow and, okay and it's talking right? of aliens and outer space and you know crazy shit that was definitely you know North Korea is an incredible place and I'm not not good or bad. I'm not making a judgment. It's just an incredible place. It feels like another another planet. Yeah. And it feels like half the time you're thinking, are we really in North Korea or are we somewhere that says it's North Korea? It's it's that kind of double reality that's going on. And they and they they were the first band ever to play a public concert in North and, Korea. And how was what, how was the reaction to this? Was it sit down, polite applause type yeah, thing? Yeah, sit right. down, polite applause. Um, Gosh. But amazing, an amazing feat to get that organised. That we didn't. I wasn't involved with the organisation of it. I have to say, but um, I was there, 
and to witness it. And it's it's very heavily documented. There's going to be a film and stuff. Yes, that must have been but amazing. To have these guys from Slovenia in North Korea playing that kind of that kind of music, and all the I'm not going to go into the shenanigans that surrounded the whole thing, but it was an incredible experience. So I really had to kind of had to be lie back, and I thought wow. this track would be the. There's, a, there's something very strong politically there about a, a, some, you know, a band that sort of grew up th- through the Tito regime and then yeah. end, ended up in North Korea. There's yeah. definitely a, it's a very interesting cultural yeah. thing happening right there. Well, yeah. What a fascinating way to end and, yeah. and how brilliant to end. And I'm, I'm so glad that you said Slovenian because, of course, I've always thought of them as a Yugoslav. You know, yeah. when I bought the 12-inch back, back when I was, whatever, 19. When and, it was. And it was a Yugoslavian band. Yeah. And, of course, that, that, that um, puts a pin in the map for me in, in, yeah. a, in a much more correct way. <laughs> um, Daniel, thank you so much for, uh, for what, what a fascinating, fascinating tra- chat. And you are a, a true trailblazer. Trailblazers. Daniel Miller Life Life is life 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 is life Life is life When we all feel the power Originals Trailblazers Thanks for your ears. We hope you enjoyed Trailblazers. Uh, we love your feedback. So if you want to get in touch with either of us, you can reach out to me via Twitter at EddieTM. That's E-double-D-Y-T-M. Or you can reach out to myself, Nick Hawkes, N-I-C-K-H-A-L-K-E-S, on uh, Twitter or Facebook. And remember, we've just given you a taste of the, the great music that uh, shaped the journey of our special guest today. Uh, if you want to hear music in full, head over to Deezer.com and you you can find special Trailblazers playlists that Eddie and I put together and some special stuff from our guests. And bear in mind that if you enjoyed this stuff on Trailblazers, you'll definitely enjoy the curated playlists that happen on Deezer. Just download the app for free and search for Trailblazers or head to the dance section. Where you'll find a playlist for just about any genre you can think of in dance. Trailblazers. Thanks so much to the amazing Daniel Miller for joining us. Next time on Trailblazers. Tony Prince. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.